right, welcome back to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, where we usually talk about New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan's perspective. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. This week, we did that already earlier this week. I spoke to Christy Acker of the New York Daily News, talking about the New York Yankees offseason. The Week 8 NFL Picks, that podcast is up in the podcast feed. If you want to go check that out. This is going to be a little fun today. We're going to do a little Halloween pop culture party here, bringing all three members of our pop culture team. We're going to talk about first the premiere of the season two of The Mandalorian that dropped on got dropped yesterday, if you're listening to the podcast today, on release date on Halloween. And we're joined by the great John Stanko, the host of Stanko's Stance, in just a minute to break that all down. We're also going to talk about the latest Netflix haunting series, The Haunting of Bly Manor, with Sam DeRosa in just a bit as well. That was a fun bit of conversation as well. Make sure you get to the end of the podcast as well. The great Alan Austin is here. We will also be talking about some of his thoughts on Bly Manor, a couple of miscellaneous items we've done in the past, plus a little draft of content you can consume on Halloween when hopefully you're being socially responsible, not going to these big Halloween parties and risk becoming a COVID super spreader. But we'll get started with our look at The Mandalorian right after this. Here, getting ready to dive deep into the season two of The Mandalorian on the podcast. Here, we're going to give you episode recaps every week of the eight episode second season. I'm pleased today to kick off this series with the, the host of Stanko Stance, the resident film critic of the podcast, and a big Star Wars fan, the great John Stanko. John, welcome back. How are you? The Mandalorian is back, Michael. I'm doing very well. Woke up with a bit of a pep in my step this morning, uh, knowing I had something to watch late morning. So uh, I'm doing very well. Yourself? I'm doing very good. I mean, that was the first thing I did today. I woke up as I popped on Disney Plus, watched the first episode. A little longer than I thought it was going to be, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, it, I believe this is the longest episode of any episode that's been put out thus far. Yeah, I, I believe think... the, the longest last year was the season finale, and this was longer than that. Yeah, I think the season finale is about 46 minutes. And I think this one is was fifty four. I think the premiere was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was almost an hour. And uh, I mean, it. I think we're going to talk about it. It was longer, but for the most part, it did not drag at all. The time went by very fast. So I think more more people than not are going to be very happy with the length of it. Yeah, I think so too. Because like the one thing I like about it, and we'll get to the spoilers in just a minute, is. I think it moved. It didn't leave you sitting there dragging, like looking at your watch, looking at your phone, saying how much longer it is. You really weren't like left hanging there. No, I would agree with you. And I think they did a very clever of the, of the producers and Tavro and everyone involved that the opening five minutes was pretty much a ton of footage from the trailer. It was action packed. People immediately recognized the vibe of what they were into. And then after that, after the title comes up with a Mandalorian and the Marshall title of the episode, then it dives into like the brand new stuff. So very smart marketing by the Mandalorian and everyone involved with it to kind of start grip everyone in with the action and then start setting the scene. 
Yeah, for sure. And before we get into all of that, eh, let's talk a little bit about season one. Like, what drew you into season one immediately? Uh, what drew me into season one, Mike, is that The Mandalorian is, is unlike any other Star Wars media out there. Uh, it's a Western that's set in the realm of science fiction, but also definitely has some noir kind of tendencies to it, and it blends genres incredibly well. Uh, my favorite example of this is, I believe it's episode six of season one, when Mando goes onto the prison ship with a bunch of other mercenaries, gets backstabbed like he always does, and has to fight his way out. That episode was like science fiction, western horror, all blended into one. So that's a really big part is the way it blends genre. And I also, this is just me being honest, it's a huge sigh of relief that the idea of the Jedi are not a major talking point in the show. It's a complete clean palette from the rest of Star Wars, not only with the way it looks and the way it feels, but also in literally the story that it's telling. It's completely different. There's no, not as many strings attached to like the major blockbuster cinema masterpieces that have been made. So I that's what those are kind of the two major reasons that I like it. Yeah, I think the good. it's obviously a good thing. I think if it's not like messed up in all the Star Wars lore, sure, there are Easter eggs in there and things that can help you if you know them. But like, as I told our friend Alan Austin recently, I said, hey, like, this is a good show. You can jump right in without having seen any of the movies and you'll still have a good time. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. And I think the same goes for you don't need to have seen all the TV shows, right, Mike? Yeah. Because if you've seen Star Wars, Clone Wars, or Rebels, you are noticing so much more stuff than the normal person. Um, like for myself, another reason I like season one of The Mandalorian is because it kind of got me into Star Wars Clone Wars, the animated series. Granted, I'll admit not having finished it yet because I fell off because it was a little bit too childish for me at times. But with that being said, season one of uh, episode one of season two dropping today, I'm not going to lie. I turned on a little bit of Clone Wars this afternoon just to put something on in the background. So again, it's reinvigorated my interest in things that are not just the major motion pictures. It certainly has. And before we dive into the premiere in detail, let's, let's reset for the audience. Where did we leave off in season one? Because obviously we end the season. The mission of the season is starts off with the Mandalorian title character, played by Pedro Pascal. He decides to take a bounty to basically bring this child, who we get to know as Baby Yoda in unofficial terms, to, to the Empire. Breaks the child out and travels with him, trying to find his home at the end of the season. We see the dark saber from an empire imperial remnant come out, and he finds out that's a something we'll dive into. I'm sure as the season goes on. But what else stuck out from the end of season one? I think the end of season one. Uh, I liked it how the Mandalorian was back on his own. That's kind of the last scene is that he's like he's taking the baby on a new quest uh, with his creed to bring it back to his people. Um, I liked it a lot when the Mandalorian was on its own in season one, so they got back to that at least at the end of season one and now with the beginning of season two, because he's, he just introduced the characters, right? Every episode of, of season one, it was kind of like a new character was introduced. You don't know if you're ever going to see them again. And a couple of them came back for the season finale, but a couple of them were just one-off. And I kind of like that. A lot of people, I thought personally didn't love it when the Mandalorian was on its own because it felt too much like Star Trek, where it was just like an episode by episode story. But that's part of the reason I love this show. So that's really why I like the ending to season one. But with that being said, the ending to season one also had a major shift with uh, the Mandalorian taking off his helmet in front of the droid and him kind of softening his hard take on droids, if you will, which obviously he 
has those feelings because of the purge of his people when the Empire was sending George to literally kill his village before he was saved by the Mandalorian. So you see that softness of his opinions on droids really, really come to fruition at the end of season one with the sacrifice of the nurse droid who was revamped from episode one, season one. So those are kind of the two major things that came out. It's softening on the droids, which I think is going to play a theme throughout uh, this upcoming season. And it's also, he's just back on his own. He's going back to his own adventures. He's going to meet new people. And eventually, we'll reconnect with his friends. Yeah, he will. And now that we've set the stage a little bit, let's play the spoiler sound. All right, so if you have not watched Season 2, Episode 1 of The Mandalorian, get out of the podcast, go watch the episode, come back, because now John and I are going to go into all of the spoilers. So we'll start from here. I mean, the opening sequence, man, that was just bang up when you see him go to this planet, try and get some information on finding Mandalorians. And like you said, it's basically the big fight from the trailer, and they did a good job just wetting your appetite with that and not giving away much of the plot, because basically that's the first five minutes. That whole sequence is over. Yeah, it is. And I love this opening scene. I don't know if you've ever seen Escape from New York, Mike, but it reminded me of that movie. Have you seen that before? I've seen it before. Yeah, with Snake Plissken and you have the desecrated city that is just graffiti everywhere. You have things hiding in the shadows where you want to stay in the light. You don't know what's out there. And then, I mean, I thought Snake Plissken was just going to appear out of the shadows. That's kind of what this whole vibe reminded me of. He also had a wrestling ring with a giant fight with that was used as entertainment for everybody, which is again escape from New York. So it really reminded me of that vibe. Uh, and again, like you said, it got people excited right away because it just hopped right into the action. Like I, it was a great opening sequence. It immediately hooked people in. Also, very very creative way to kill uh, to kill the kind of the, the guy who backstabbed him, uh, just letting the animal feast on him, shooting out the light. I was a fan of that kill. Yeah, it was great, and it's a great visual, too, when you see the lights go out, you see the red eyes from all like the the ravenous like rat creatures that are basically roaming around, they're going to eat this guy to, at the end, and he says, Mando, basically, like, I, I didn't say I would kill you. I love that. There's yeah, like, it, deadpan it, line. You will, not die. Yeah, you will not die by my hand, and he was not lying. He was not lying. Those, uh, those evil eyes reminded me of, like, the evil Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland just creepily staring out into the void. Uh, but it was a great opening sequence, and I really loved how there was a blatant wrestling shout-out, if you will, with a uh, attacker blatantly doing a suicide dive off the top rope through a table, missing the Mandalorian, which is classic wrestling. Absolutely classic. So I saw that and immediately pointed it out to myself, going, that's a nice little touch of the director, just giving something to wrestling fans there. Yeah, so the first five minutes we spend there, the rest of the episode is back on Tatooine. We spent, I think, two ep- couple episodes in season one there. We came back. We can't, were you surprised that we went back to Tatooine this early? Uh, no, I was not, uh, because I do... No, I wasn't, because Tatooine is, frankly, it's the most popular and the most well-known planet in the Star Wars universe, right? But the thing is, we don't know a lot about Tatooine, right? We know Mark Isley, we know where Luke grew up, we know some other outposts and stuff like that, but we don't know a lot about what happens outside the major cities and the major venues we've seen, and that's what the Mandalorian does. Like, it's kind of taking away the shadow from everything that's unknown and kind of shining a light on like the darker points that have not been shown on. And that's why we went to this outskirt village in the middle of nowhere. We have to take a speeder bike to get to and there's lack of resources everywhere. I loved it how they kind of expanded the testing universe by going to the outskirts of it. Were you happy to see Amy Sedaris's character back again? 
I was. I was. I mean, she was a funny character coming back. Uh, I do think she said the phrase, thanks the force. Yeah. Which, to my recollection, Mike, was there ever a direct reference to the force in season one? I just rewatched it this past week. I didn't remember one. Uh, the Mandalorian, like, Mando doesn't, like, doesn't, it kind of, like, doesn't register in his head. He just, like, lets it pass by like it's a phrase everyone uses. But that immediately jumped out to me when we were reintroduced to her. Yeah, I, I, I remember they, they mentioned the Jedi once when they talked about how, like, there was a race of beings that did things when Mando talks about how the, the child used used magic to basically kill, like, like, to kill or free something in action. But we I don't think we actually actually had the word the Force said before. That's what I'm saying. I think this is the first time the word the Force were used in the Mandalorian, which is it's a huge, I mean, look, the Force is the Force. It is essential Star Wars. So that's a huge kind of landmark. Uh, on this, in this uh, episode one, yeah, and we get him there because he's looking for the Mandalorian he was told about in the in the first five minutes of the show. He heads to a town called Mos Pelgo, which he'd never heard of before. It was like basically a town in the middle of nowhere, one of those like seedy towns that you never really see. And we get there, we see a guy show up in. He, he's called the Marshal. We told by the bartender, and he shows up in Boba Fett's art, but it's not Boba Fett. It's this guy named Cobb Vanth, named, played by Timothy Oliphant. So, how pumped are you to see his role in this show, in this episode? I mean, you hear his voice first, right, when he yeah. has the helmet on, and I was immediately like, "Oh, that's Timothy Oliphant," and I love Timothy Oliphant. I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and um, it, I mean, the character kind of played to his tropes a little bit, reminded me of the show he was on Justified, where he played Raylan Gibbons, where he was a sheriff. Uh, a marshal and was kind of snarky and a little bit of an attitude, didn't trust anyone. And he kind of played the same character, but maybe more of a comedic spin. But I was very excited. And but Timothy Olfant's a little bit of a, a Western run, if you will. His most recent project, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he was acting in a Western movie. Uh, Deadwood the movie, literally classic Western TV show, bought the movie, and now The Mandalorian. So he fits the Western genre well, and I think he played this part very well. And I hope that he comes back later this season. No guarantee of that, uh, but I would not be upset to see him again. Yeah, so anyway, he shows up. He ha- he reveals that basically he got this armor from Jawas. We see it in flashbacks, the bo- how he got the Boba Fett armor, but we have basically, they're going to th- fight each other over it, and you know that Mando is going to like basically kick his ass eventually, but they get distracted because the crate Dragon comes in, just sweeps through the entire town, then kills like a Bantha that's out there, and... I have to say, that's a deep pull for Star Wars, and I, I, the first time I actually heard of the Crate Dragon was there's a quest in the Nice Little Republic video game on Tatooine where you have to kill a Crate Dragon, so it was very interesting to see that reference being popped up again. Yeah, I mean, this is, when I saw the, the effect of the ground rising up and something underneath the ground going through the town, I immediately thought of Tremors. I don't know if you've seen the movie Tremors, early 90s, Kevin Bacon, but I immediately thought of that, and I could not stop thinking of Graboids. And that's basically what this was. It's, it's so like Tremors. It's a desolate town set in a sand environment with a dwindling population and nobody even knows it on the map, but these people need to band together, make some unruly alliances to defeat a monster that comes up from out of the ground and is threatening their livelihood. It's literally Tremors, but they just made it into Star Wars with the Crate Dragon. So I was a huge fan of immediately the vibe that they were going for with it. And it, it hooked me in even deeper. Yeah, this was a fun ride the rest of the way. Because this is basically the plot of the rest of the episode is that those two make a deal where 
Cobb Vance says, hey, I'll give you the arm if you help me get rid of the Great Dragon. And then we also spend a lot of time actually getting to know the Sand People a little bit, who the Tusken Raiders, who Star Wars fans know back for Episode 2. They're the ones who kill Anakin Skywalker's mother. We see them in Episode 4. Like, And did you are you surprised that Mayo's how to communicate with them? No, because he, uh, I believe in Episode 5 of Season 1, with the Gunslinger, when he is riding around with the bandit, um, trying to get the uh, the sniper assassin, is that he bargains with them in the desert. So they actually landed this little clue in season one, and now now season two, they're able to even expand on it further and explore the culture of the Tuscan creatures, which I thought was really really cool. Because what are they known for? They're known for the yell and raising the pike up, going whatever sound effect that is. That was terrible, by the way. That was awful. <laughs> uh, but, like, I, I really liked how they explored the culture and they very briefly explored the relationship between the humans on, on Tatooine and the Tusken Raiders. I mean, they classically say, humans say, oh, they attack our land. And meanwhile, the Tusken Raiders are like, we were here first. So it reminded me a lot of the relationship between elves and humans uh, on the continent in the world of the Witcher. But they banded together to, to beat this dragon. And I, I really like how they explored the culture of it. They did, and they gave you another subtle hint that I too, because on the way to from when Mando leaves the 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 place where he's the razor, razor crest, is on his way there. We see a brief cutaway of him camping at night with Tuscan Raiders and conversing with them, and then you you kind of first yep. think, oh, it's a cutaway, and then you realize, oh, that's a big thrust of the whole episode. It is, it is, and again, I again, it's opening the window into different areas of Star Wars that have not yet been explored, and. Again, huge fan of what John Favreau did writing and directing this episode and setting the tone. Yeah, and I did think this also this episode as a whole sort of had very season one vibes, where it's sort of like, okay, here's a problem, here's our set of characters. Mando's going to sort of be the guy who brings two groups together because he brings together the villagers and the sand people to combat this crate dragon and the whole thing with. Obviously, you see the tension between the two sides. And when you see the one villager gets mad when the explosive gets dropped, he thinks the sandman is trying to kill him. I think we get a good deal here from them. It's like if you're the village and you get a deal, hey, like they can keep the carcass of the sand of the crate dragon after we kill it, and they don't invade us. Like, I think it's a great deal for you to take. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think it's a great deal for the city too. And again, it, it it's peace until the humans raise a pistol or raise a blaster at the Tuscan Raiders, which, yeah. listen, if we're going to put it straight on humanity, it's not, we're not the most reliable bunch. So the, the humans are probably going to break that bond with the Tuscan Raiders, let's be real. But it was a, a win-win for both. So curious as, like, actually, obviously, yeah, you're going to get to the battle and the stuff like that. But I have a question for you about what the Tuscan Raiders may have been looking for when they got the husk of, of this dragon. Yeah, they were do they were they were taking a peek for the for the pearl of the drag the dragon. That's something again that they've referenced in like Nice Little Republic, where there's one side where you have to kill a crate dragon to try and get inside a cave, and you're working with a bounty hunter, and he's basically going for the pearl, and you're going to to get the star map. That, okay, think, so then there you go. That's what I was going to ask. I was like, is, I was like, is that a pearl that they're raising or is that an egg? I wasn't entirely sure, but you answered that question for me with uh, your knowledge of the Nice Little Republic. Yeah, that's a direct Nice Little Republic poll. Is that is that they're going for the pearl, the crate dragon? Which I think, obviously, you don't need to know that. You don't need to play the game to understand that. But it's a nice little nod to the people who follow the expanded Star Wars continuity over the years. Yeah, that's great. That's again, that's phenomenal writing. Again, it doesn't need to be flashy to be good. It can be subtle, which is the way which is the, the way the Mandalorian drives. 
Yeah, so we see earlier at the battle plan, first they try and get him out there and see how big it is. The plan doesn't work. A Tusken Raider dies, and then we realize we need to get the entire villages involved. We need to blow up underneath the belly to because it's the most susceptible area. The plan particularly doesn't work, and then Mando has this brilliant idea. We're going to have him eat the Bantha and blow up the Bantha inside of him, so... Great job there, and I think it was an interesting choice that he trusted Cobb Man to care for the child in case it didn't work. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I would agree, but again, I, this is the only gripe I really have about the episode, Mike, is I, I thought this ending was incredibly predictable. Um, because when they, when the humans and the Tuscan Raiders are walking together toward the pit of the dragon, there's a blatant shot of a bantha with explosives strapped on it. And I saw it, and I was like, that's how they're going to kill it. Is it going to explode in the mouth or whatever? It's going to be like Jaws where the big explosion is going to blow it up from the inside. And that's kind of exactly what happened. So I was a little bit bummed with how predictable they made it. I think they dropped a few too many hints with it. Um, so that, that's the only gripe I have is that I wasn't completely and utterly surprised and satisfied with the way the dragon was killed. Yeah, that, that, that one they did telegraph it a mile away if you know what you're looking for there. But I thought the whole battle with the crate dragon was definitely a lot of fun seeing all the different groups having to work together and seeing all different weapons they're throwing at it. I thought it was definitely a unique way of fighting. We don't usually see in the star Wars universe either. Yeah, I would agree. I think the, the medieval hook that the Tuscan Raiders had was a very, uh, just a different vibe than the blasters that the humans had. So just a different way of approaching the battle. And I don't know how those, those medieval wooden spikes would hold that dragon down, but they seem to do the job. All right. Uh, and like the battle when you had the Marshall and Mando on their jetpacks and flying onto the mountain to try and just convince the, the dragon to keep moving forward and because it wasn't dead yet. Like, it was, that was all good stuff. I love also, I think there was a slight reference. It, or it reminded me of Jurassic Park with uh, the dragon, his eyes, uh, the profile view, just shifting and starting to look at the Marshall and Mando. It reminded me a lot of the Jurassic Park uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. So I think that maybe there was a little nod there as well. But again, the fight overall was very entertaining. No but I mean, no budget concerns at all because they spent so much money making this look good. And it did look really, really good. The dragon was very, very good. Yeah, it was a fantastic looking dragon. At the end, we do see the exchange happen. Mando gets Boba Fett's armor and like, Cobb Vance gets the dragon killed. He's basically keeping, in keeping an eye on his village now. He's still the marshal of it. He's the one who basically has kept order in there after a group of, I think I want to say my, like evil miners took over following the fall of the Empire. Do you think we'll yep. see Timothy Oliphant again at the, by the end of the season? I'm going to be honest. The answer is no, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I would love to see him again, but I think this is one of those one-offs we just meet a character that we really like and that we'll remember fondly, but I don't think we're going to see him again. Yeah, I could see it both ways. I do think he's such a big name. I could say, okay, maybe we'll just bring him in for the finale to help out whatever mission we need going on. But I don't think we'd see him again before that. I think he's going to be – there's also a good chance he's one and done. And honestly, if this, if we see him again, I can imagine we see him, like, dead. Like, like the village was wiped out, and Mando was like, oh, no, like, what have I done? Like, I left them, and now they're dead. Like, kind of like – some sort of moment like that, but I don't think we're going to see him on like another mission again or anything like that. That's kind of the vibe that I'm going for. Because now, I mean, he had he had Boba Fett's armor. Now, now 
Mando has it. And I think at the, the end of the episode, we saw kind of what meeting is going to happen soon that everyone's excited for. And I, I think that's, that's, that's going to be it, though, for the Marshal in terms of, like, action stuff. Yeah, so we leave him behind. We see we see uh, Mando leaving with the armor. Then we see off screen. We see like watching from above. We see Tamura Morrison, who played, I think I want to say he played Django Fett, and he's obviously the model for all the clones, including Boba Fett. So the Boba Fett theory a long time ago for fans of Episode Six, who've been arguing, oh, he escaped the Sarlacc. Now we have proof he did. Yeah, I mean, we have proof he did. I think that was canon though, uh, in like the Star Wars comics and stuff like that, and other media. So, but now it's coming to the more mainstream, if you will. And I do think, like, we were, we got the hint of Boba Fett again with the Gunslinger episode in season one when you just saw that boot come on the final screen, uh, the final shot of that episode, uh, that episode five. So, again, because that episode was set on Tantooine, so it would make a lot of sense. So, I think that is that Boba Fett kind of has a sense of this Mandalorian because he knows a little bit of the history. He obviously watch them take down the dragon and Boba Fett and uh, the Mandalorian do it kind of on his own, be the hero and be the martyr. And he also knows that he took down a deadly assassin in season one, or at least he has a body from it. So he can kind of infer. So I think that Boba Fett's going to come in with some knowledge of the Mandalorian that the Mandalorian is going to be surprised about. Yeah. I also think that the thing with Boba Fett that's interesting is that like this character sort of his big mythological pull with the star Wars fans, because he has such the badass suit in episode five, but we don't really know anything about him because, I mean, he gets killed episode six unceremoniously. He shows up a kid episode two. We don't see him again. So there's basically a blank slate, this very iconic character. There is. And there is. And I think, again, this is something where, where Favreau can, can, write, can write in something that's really intriguing, but I hope they don't overexpose it, Mike. I think I told you in the beginning how the Mandalorian, the TV show, is a clean slate, and it's not connected to the majority of the Star Wars universe that people know. It's very different and isolated. I don't want them bleeding too much into what the fans want and recognize it. So I want them to have, them to have that individuality. So I hope it's like a one-episode thing. I hope it's not too long-lasting. Yeah, I would. I think this could be where we go episode two, because I think I could see them staying on Tatooine and having Boba Fett follow him, or we could be bolder and just push it off a little bit. Maybe have him end up back on Tatooine or have Boba Fett follow him for a little bit before they meet up again. Yeah, I don't think they're going to meet up this episode. Again, what I think is that uh, is that the Mandalorian Mando is going to end up back on Tatooine somewhere later in the season. He's going to go back to the Marshall's village. He's going to see that it's destroyed, and then he's going to turn around, and Boba Fett's going to be there, and the shot is going to be like, uh, is going to be like a Western duel where they're going to have the, the high angle with the space between them, with the stand, and then just standing there like sizing each other up. That's what I imagine is going to happen. Not next episode, but down the road. Yeah, I do think there's a good chance he's a one-episode character. I think they just basically tell his story and let him exist in the universe for, and leave him alone. That They can pull him later if they want to. Yep, I, that's, that's what I think is going to happen, and I hope that that's the case. Don't, again, don't give us too much. Because again, with this episode one, you know what we didn't see a lot of? We didn't see a ton of Baby Yoda. We didn't see Baby Yoda with his powers. And I love that. Keep that. Because that's what people want to see. That's the that's the hook that got so many people into season one is the development of Baby Yoda's the child powers and stuff like that. And what can it do? And it looks so cute. We didn't get a ton of it in this premiere. So it's good. They're keeping it away from the audience and they're keeping the audience hungry for it. Yeah, because they he does a couple of fun little moments there, like when he 
pops back into his pod when he knows the fight's about to go down and we see him kind of like creeping around when they're trying to kill the crate dragon but they do a good job of realizing that this is still the show about the Mandalorian, not the Baby Yoda show. So they're doing a good job of giving you bits and pieces of the Baby Yoda character. Yeah, they didn't bite into, into the commercialism of Star Wars too much in this premiere, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, they, and we knew this was the deal with this whole series because remember back when they, the original one came out back in October, nobody knew Baby Yoda was coming last year. So we had this whole opportunity for Christmas season merch of Baby Yoda that they convinced Disney not to pursue to keep the secret. So this is a group that values the storytelling over the merchandising opportunities. Yeah, and I listen, there's going to be plenty of money made from this show, and you look at the budget and you look at the way that episode looks, Disney has dropped a ton of eggs in this basket, so they're just hoping it doesn't crack. Uh, because once things get back to normal, they're, they're going to be a Mandalorian ride at Disney World, whatever Disney park they want. And they're going to sell as many toys and dolls as possible. Oh, they absolutely are. And I do think it's going to be fun to track how the season goes. The same length of episodes. We have eight episodes here like we did in season one. And I do think I, I think we'll have a lot of these side missions before we get sort of a group assembled at the end for a big thing. My question theory is this. Obviously, we're talking at the beginning of the season. I'm hoping to get you back on, around the finale. So... Do you think we will get to Baby Yoda's people this season? You think it's going to be a mystery they leave for season three? I think it's going to be a mystery that they leave for season three. That, that's what I think. Um, I think that they'll get to around some Jedi, and they'll maybe get to around like that sort of, if you want to refer to the child's people as people who are Force-sensitive. I think we will meet more of those people, but in terms of the species itself, I don't think we're going to meet them until later down the road in this series as a whole. Yeah, it will be fun, and I'm gonna obviously I mentioned on top here. I'm gonna do weekly covers of the Mandalorian next week. Our good buddy Pete Costner is gonna be on to do episode two. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, Pete's a big fan. I know he definitely watched it today, so he's gonna come in with a hot take. How many hockey analogies is he gonna make during the episode? <laughs> One can never know. But, uh, but yeah, no, for sure, you definitely got to give that a listen. Yeah, it's gonna be coming out like this every week. What's gonna happen with this is we're gonna recap it on the podcast every week. It'll come out with the regular episodes most occasions, but the the video version is going to be up on YouTube on the day that we record so that you don't have to wait that long. You really want to get the Mandalorian takes right now. I listen, there's a hunger for it right now, so you got to feast on it while you can. It's one of those few shows that still releases weekly, Mike, and I think it's one of the smartest things that Disney Plus has done is because they are just they're containing the culture for as long as they possibly can. With people trapped inside, now not as many sports happening, they're taking advantage of it. They absolutely are. John, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. How can people follow on social media if they want to keep up with you? And how about Stanko's stance? Uh, you can follow me on social media at jstanko99 on all social media platforms. I've been updating a little bit more on Stanko's stance.wordpress.com. Uh, got some stuff up there. and Yeah, I mean, feel free to hit me up. I'm always on Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. Yes, thanks, John, for coming on for this part. Before, like, we're going to keep going with our Halloween pop culture party here. I be talk joined by Sandra Rosa in just a minute to talk about the haunting of Bly Manor. I know you have not finished the show yet, but what are your impressions as this far? Yeah, I'm I'm five episodes in. Uh, it is very good thus far. Again, it's exceptionally well made and well written, which I'm a huge fan of. This season is not as scary as Hill House, in my opinion, thus far. Now, granted, I have not reached the climax yet, so that may change. But, I, again, I wholeheartedly endorse it, especially Episode 5. Episode 5 
it confused my girlfriend watching it, but it also touched her emotionally. And for me, it was argu- it was definitely the best made episode of the season thus far. So I'm, I'm, a lot, I'm a little bit more than halfway through. Definitely going to finish it probably this weekend with the Halloween setting that we have uh, and wholeheartedly endorse. Yeah, I wholeheartedly endorse it as well. I'm going to give you a piece of advice here. I finished it. Episode 8 will give Episode 5 a run for its money in terms of structure, in terms of the theme. But for more of this conversation, more on Haunting of Blind Matter, you can listen to my conversation with Sam DeRosa right after this. We are back here on the Halloween special to just end the suffering podcast. You just missed John Stanko talking about the Mandalorian premiere. Join me now to talk about the haunting of Bly Manor. Our next Halloween event is the show's pop culture correspondent, Sam DeRosa. Sam, welcome back. How are you? Thanks for having me again. This is good stuff. I'm very excited. Yeah, and back to back weeks as well. We just talked about Supermarket Sweep last week. Yeah, I'm very excited. This is like giving my work from the home vibe extra spice it is extra spicy and speaking of extra spicy i want to give a shout out to the great sterling k brown who liked one of our tweets last week what a cool dude man what a cool dude <laughs> yeah i was sitting there on twitter because i'm putting them out i'm getting the notifications i see a notification on my timeline says sterling k brown liked your tweet and it was talking about sterling k brown's portrayal of leo on the west Wing special we talked about last week i'm sitting there like okay sterling k brown fan account i opened up i'm like Oh my goodness, this is the actual Sterling K. Brown verified account. Oh, when you when you text me, you're like, go check out the tweet or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, no way. Yeah. And then I made my own tweet. It didn't get nearly as much traction, but it's okay. He didn't have to like that tweet too. That's a- asking for two likes is, is, I think, asking for too much, but it's okay. It's okay. It's our second most notorious pop cult or culture one. Actually, our most notorious. Second most was when I had, talked to Alan Oz about Tough as Nails back in the summer and the host of the show, Phil Kogan, actually retweeted it. So we're getting somewhere with this. Hey, look at this. You are gaining gaining some serious uh, some serious stride here. Yeah, we are gaining some serious stride. We're going to talk today about The Haunting of Bly Matter, the Netflix show, the follow-up in the anthology series, The Haunting of Hill House. It dropped earlier this month. It took me a while to actually finish it because, as Sam knows, I'm a terrible binger. I tend to do one at a time. Sam, how long did it take you to actually finish <laughs> this show? A uh, day and a half. It took me about three weeks. <laughs> oh my God. How did you wait that long? For me, it's just a matter of like what I actually have time for because it's like, I'll, these episodes are not short. They're like at least 50 minutes. I know, but that's what's staying up really late when you're supposed to be catching up on some serious well-vies kind of deal. But I stayed up and watched it. I like got up one morning on a Friday and that's like my day off in the morning. Watched it from, like, 8 in the morning to, like, 3, you know, had some, like, breaks here and there. And then I finished it on Saturday morning before in-between work. I will say, though, the slow burn did help this to me because I del- I remember I was sitting there marinating on each point between the episodes. I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? I think this helps because I think it's also why the Disney Plus model works with The Mandalorian because you have a week to marinate. The episode model is not dead, at least in my world. Yeah, I mean, I like I like when things come out all at once because I'm a I'm definitely have the personality for binge watching. 
like I'm going to be happy when the Mandalorian comes out every week. It gives me something to look forward to. Yeah. But then at the same time, I like watching like 10 episodes all at once, like digesting it all. Yeah. And this show, like obviously it's the haunting, haunting of blind matter. It's about a nanny who from America who goes to help raise these two kids at a haunted mansion in Bly, England. And I just think it's definitely a lot of fun. And it is the spiritual successor to Haunting a Hell House. Some of the same actors are in it playing different roles. Like, what do you think was the big difference in your mind between Hill House and Bly Manor? I feel like Bly Manor was supposed to be more, like, jumpy. Like, you were waiting for something to jump out at you. I know if that doesn't make any sense. Like, I guess I felt that way with Haunting Hill House, but it's been so long since I got that fresh taste. But I really enjoyed Bly Manor. Like, it was a different type of ghost story, and I think that's what they were going for. What do I know? I mean, I didn't write any of this, slash produce it, slash direct anything. Anywho, I'll put that little asterisk in there. Um, but I really thought that, like, I liked that it was different than Hill House. Yeah, before we you go, know? Yeah, before we go any further, I'm going to play the spoiler warning in case you haven't finished binging Hill House yet. Oh, yeah. Bly, Bly Manor yet, so... All right, so if you are not finished Haunting a Blind Manor yet, go out, get out of here, go watch the show, come back at the end, and then let us know what you think. But I think the big difference to me is just, like, I feel like the Haunting of Hell House was a true, like, horror story where you have the kids getting haunted by this mansion, and we have them sort of dealing with this trauma throughout their lives from their time in, at Hill House. But here... We, I think this was basically a love story in disguise, this this series. Oh, definitely. Yeah, because, like, the main thrust of this series is we have sort of a love story between Danny the Nanny, played by uh, great Victoria Pedretti, who played Nell in Hill House, and Jamie, played by the newcomer Amelia Eve, and it's a same-sex relationship. It's a very well-handled relationship, and you see basically the through line through the nine episodes is their relationship progressing. Yeah, which was, like, it was, like, a nice surprise because I didn't know where this was going to go. Like, I like I know that they said it was kind of, like, a haunting, but it was also a love story in the first episode. Um, but still, like, it's, like, that's something, like, the first episode you kind of forget about, like, even though they prefaced it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And basically, at the end of this, at the whole series set up with this overarching structure, which I forgot about because, again, I'm doing it over three weeks, and... At the, <laughs> at the premiere, like, we have this wedding going on, and we have the narrator, played by Carla Gugino, who played the mom in Haunting of Hill House, and she's telling a story, and basically she's the narrator throughout the series, and we find out at the end that she has actually grown up Jamie, like, 30 years in the future, and Danny at that point has, has passed away, she took her own life, we'll get to why in a bit, but I did like that sort of structure, sort of give it a different twist on the story than what Hill House did, was basically just using flashbacks, jumping back and forth in the stories. Yeah, no, that was like a nice, like, I was like wondering if this was going to be like a story about somebody's life, um, but I wasn't expecting it was going to be Jamie telling the story. No, like I was sitting there, I'm like, because they think it's a good bait and switch in their part, because once you see that you spend most time with Danny, you're like, oh, this is probably grown up Danny telling you the story. And mm -hmm. then at the end, it's Jamie. You're like, oh, that's a pretty nice twist. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I thought it was going to be Flora telling the story. That's also a good candidate. Speaking of Flora, I think they nailed the casting of these kids because those kids were creepy at times. And the, some of the range they had to act was incredible. 
Definitely. But did you did you see who the actress who plays Flora? What else she's done? No, I have not. What else she's done? She's a, apparently. I haven't fully checked this myself, but I've seen a bunch of like funny videos on TikTok and everything that she's Peppa, the voice of Peppa Pig. Really? Apparently, I, I don't want to like throw false information on your podcast, but it's like funny because on TikTok you're like, oh my god, like Flora from Bly Manor is. The voice of Peppa Pig, and I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I'm trying to fact check that right now to see if she, if she. You know, it's so funny because I'm doing that too right now as well as we speak. I had to say it to say it, but yeah, we have to fact check that. But like, the thing that's interesting about these these child actors is that like, obviously they are playing themselves and they are pretty creepy kids, but like. We see at times that they act like adults, like they're way too mature for their age at points, and then we find out this is one of the haunting effects of the of the matter because people who die on the mansion grounds for at least a solid couple like a hundred couple hundred years they don't leave the grounds and then they sort of possess living people try and get themselves out of there and we see points that miles and floor are being possessed by deceased character which is actually pretty creepy yeah no it's it's that whole i thought i feel like that's why like i know everyone's probably going to disagree with me i thought this season was scarier than um hill house that's a hot take i've seen people go the other way and say that hill that hill house was definitely scarier like i don't know what it was about why manor maybe like i don't know maybe it's just because it's 2020 and everything's a little extra scary nowadays but i don't know i felt more scared watching this and i felt more like jumpy every time i watched it than i remember initially from hill house yeah, I think it's a different type of scary, whereas, like, Hell House Village was going more for the jump scares and, like, the like the OS moments, like, you can't believe this happened, or, like, you didn't see this ghost in the corner, where this is feeling like more a little more psychological in terms of these scares. Yeah, especially because, like, so you don't see the ghost all the time on Hill House, so you get that feeling of, like, uneasiness, but, like, with this one, it's just, like, boom, like, scariness. Yeah, I did do the fact check, by the way. You are correct that Amelia Bay Smith is the voice of Peppa Pig, and she plays Flora on the show, Young Flora. Oh, my God. See, TikTok never leaves you wrong. Just kidding. Yeah. They do a lot, but it's fine. <laughs> We're not going to investigate TikTok. They might be a future podcast. That's a long podcast. Yeah, that's a deep dive. Maybe if we're shut down again, we'll take a dive into the world of TikTok, but we're not going to do that today, so... <laughs> Definitely not. No, I think one thing I think also makes this stand out is the use of the returning actors on this show. I mean, we had Victoria Pedretti's the main character again meets in a, a bad fate. She's uh, maybe the third haunting show. She'll actually get to live at the end of it. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen who played the who played the on the brothers in the initial show. Now he plays a complete dick in Peter Quint. We had <laughs> yes, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll get to him, trust me. And we have oh, I'm excited. Henry Thomas, who played the dad in the in the original timeline in Hill House. He plays the uncle here, Carl Gugino, who we mentioned, and a surprising spot for Kate Siegel to pop up in. We'll get to her in a bit later. But like, what did you think about how they use the Hill House actors in new roles? Um, I thought it was really. I don't know. I liked it. Like, I was very wary about it, like, in the beginning. Like, I was like, oh, like, I'm going to, like, remember them as their old characters, like, blah, blah, blah. But, like, immediately, I, like, you know, 
I went right into the story because, you know, they're all great performers. So, you know, besides that, but, um, at first the weariness, but now I enjoy it. And if they wanted to do a third season like that as well, I totally go for it. Yeah. I think the only one I don't know if he worked is like Henry Thomas had a bad British accent. His his accent was very, very off. But he's Elliot from E.T. He's great. I love him. I can't even be that mad. I do think it was also pretty cool that, like, they did that. And we'll get to Kate Siegel in a moment. But, like, I think I want to talk to some of these plot threads because, obviously, watching Hill House, you got taken for a ride. I felt like this time there were some things I was able to call ahead of time. Were you able to pick up on any threads that end up being revealed as true down the line? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, oh, my goodness. I'm losing my brain. Um, Hannah. I guess when she said she wasn't hungry, I think that was episode like one or two, um, that she said she wasn't hungry and like, she's a ghost, like a hundred percent. I called that from literally like the first or second episode. Yeah. That one I called. Remember I actually was on the podcast with Alan Austin talking about the premiere and we'll hear from Alan later on today. But I said to her, I said like, something's off with Hannah. She doesn't want to eat or drink anything. Like she's being <laughs> weird. Like I didn't say the ghost that something is up with her. Like, John Stanko, to his credit, did point out before he said that he called Miles being possessed by by something in the in the second episode. Because hmm. they did well, good old Stanko. He's always on the thing. Yeah, well, Stanko's more the literary critic of, of of this group, so like he tends to be more mm-hmm. on top of these things. Where like we're sort of reacting as we go. That is true. I like not being in his level because yeah. then I have room to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, I do think they also did a nice job giving you hints about, especially all the times that, like, Hannah's touching her neck and seeing the crack on the wall, and then Janie goes, it's not there, and then, like, they tie it all together. In my opinion, I think the best episode of the season, there's two contenders. I think for me, episode five, where you get Hannah's backstory and sort of skipping through her memories, I think that was a lot of fun. No, that was a really good episode, but I feel like I'm a sucker for backstories. So mine's episode eight. Uh, the romance of certain clo- old clothes. Yes, yes, those are the two I was going between. I'll start. I want to start with the Hannah one because to me, I think you are a Lost fan. To me, this felt like one of those weird Desmond ep- episodes where his mind sort of gets unstuck in time at points. He's skipping between timelines, and mm-hmm. I think they did a good job of sort of laying out some of the ghost rules in the Hannah episode and. The way they revealed how she died was just so tragic and such a... Oh, my God. This is such a gut so And anyway, this the way she dies is obviously, like, when we first see Danny, the, the au pair, meet Hannah, they meet at a well, and we see Hannah looking down the well. You don't realize the time that she literally died about 30 seconds before Hannah, Danny comes to meet her, and this, her ghost is staring down at her own dead body, which is really creepy. Oh, yeah, when you put it that way, it's like, it is extra sad, you know what I mean? Like yeah. for that character and for um, the actress, she did such an amazing job in that episode. Yeah. Well, she did an amazing job all season, let's be honest. Yeah. But that episode was like awesome. I mean, honestly, my favorite character on this whole thing is Owen. I mean, like, I feel like everybody can agree, but. <laughs> yeah, Owen's phenomenal. Owen the cook. And like, he did a good job episode because like his personality in that moment basically. He's Hannah's like conscience in this in the flashback scene, basically trying mm-hmm. to convince her she's dead and telling yeah. her information that's that she needs to know for the purpose of the story. And 
I like the way they kept going back to that scene of her doing his interview and then constantly changing a line or two here to like sort of advance the plot a little bit because they one of the things they did with the ghosts was they gave them a recurring memory to go back to when they first cycle over again. Like we saw with Hannah, it was the interview with Owen and Peter Quint. It was him talking to his mother. And for Rebecca Jessel, it was when she's taking the pictures of Peter Quint in the, in the, in the Forbidden Wing. Like stuff like that was cool. Yeah, no, it was really cool. And it's just like really like it made you, I know this is weird because like, you know, ghosts and stuff are right now is like a made up story kind of deal, you know, scientifically. So it's just like interesting because it made you feel like that's how you were thinking in a way, if that makes any sense yeah. to anyone listening. So like you were like getting thrown back and forth. So it, I thought they did a good job with telling like a way like, you know, a quote unquote ghost like goes through and is like present in the you know is present in the present but is also like present in like their past stories yes for sure and i do think also the thing i also called alan that was also very interesting and alan was creeped out by this the use of the dolls in the show was like especially flora's dollhouse was so creepy and then you sort of realize that the show goes on that she actually knows where the ghosts in the house are, and she's using the dolls to place where the ghosts are in the, in the house. It's really, really even creepier than some of the other stuff we've seen. Yeah, but, like, it's so awesome, her character, is she's, like, instead of being so scared, like, of, like, the little boy, because, like, oh, you've lost your face kind of deal. Like, she's just, like, she's kind-hearted. Like, she's scared, but she understands. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I thought that for her being so young, it was just, like, she was, such a good character uh the part that really got me is when they're playing hide and seek and she's like in the attic yep. and it's you know i don't want to give i know that we played the spoiler alert but um it's just i feel bad saying it right now so certainly tune your ears now it's the sister um of the manor yeah it's actually her when she goes Shh, and like when she's singing and stuff that got me that's just living the jesus out of me i was like i did not like that <laughs> i liked it but i didn't like it yeah, that's one of those holy ass moments when you see like her colleagues go shh to like the ghost like getting up from the basically starting her loop again. That was something else that was like very odd. Yeah, it was very odd. Yeah, because I try to remember what the concept was for the loops because I've, I'm from oh, it's like that's also kind of Westworldish in a way where like the ghosts have their own loops that they sort of go through and because because they sort of have to start here, end up back at the beginning of it. That's another interesting influence I just thought of. Yeah, no, I thought I thought like the way that they perceived being a ghost was very well done. Yes, it it was, and it was different too. Let's get to your episode, episode eight, which is the backstory episode, and we this is where Kate Siegel comes in. She played she played Theo in Haunting a Hill House. Now she plays Viola Willoughby, the Lady of the Manor, and she and we see her backstory is a couple hundred years ago. Like her father dies, she lives with her sister. They get married. Like Viola gets married to a distant cousin. And in tip, and this is something I don't think they had this in mind, but my God, this is so creepy for 2020 that she gets the black lung where she has this viral, yeah. like, like disease and she has, and they have to wear masks around her. I'm like, this just hits too close to home. Right. And yeah. that hit like extra close, like at the heartstrings kind of deal. Yeah. I don't know when they film this. I have to look it up, but. It just feels like so timely given what we're all going through, especially when the doctor is checking her out and he's like, oh, it's mm-hmm. it's not the plague. She has the lung. I'm like, oh, I guess the lung is 16th century COVID. 
Yeah, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. I just thought the way that the story was, like, the progression of the ghost being there. Yeah. And she's forgetting why she's there. And she's yeah. forget, like, you know, because you forget what she looks like and stuff. Like, the losing the face part, because, like, you're losing your identity. Yeah. Like, I think that was really scary. Like, you know what I mean? It's just not just on, like, a boo, like, a ah, scaring tactic. It was more like a mental scare tactic as well. Yeah, I think so too. And to basically sum up what happens to her, she, she the they try to give her last rice. She refuses. She says, "I'm not leaving." And then she outlives her prognosis. They tell, give her a couple of months. She lives for about five years after the fact. Her sister Mercy kills her because she can't stand the concept anymore. She ends up marrying the husband, which ends up being its own weird thing. Viola's ghost stays on the manor. She basically puts like possesses like these fancy clothes that she wanted to give to her daughter and. Once, like, this, the, the chest gets sealed in the attic, the manor falls into financial ruin. The sister says, I got to sell these clothes to try and help us salvage the mansion. Viola wakes, sees her sister, like, open instead of her daughter, and she just lunges and kills her. And that starts the cycle of Viola, the lady in the lake, which, phenomenal name for a ghost. I think, as you said, the progression of the ghost is creepy because, like, she's stuck in this loop. She can't identify like what's reality anymore. She just knows that she wants to get to her daughter and she kills anything that gets mm-hmm. in her way, which is how Peter Quint dies, how some people die along the way. I felt, it's felt awful when you see the kid in the bed and she takes the kid and drowns the kid. She thinks she's bringing her daughter with her. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just like the, cause it, it's scary because like she has no control over it. Cause she doesn't understand until, you know, everything that happens with Danny. But, yeah. like, where she can, like, repossess a person, basically, she becomes Danny. Yeah. But it's just, it's absolutely, like, you know, especially like that part where she takes Flora and everything, and everyone's so nervous, and she kills the uncle, and, like, you know, you know that whole thing. It's just, like, it's such a, like, it's very stressful couple minutes in that episode. Yeah, it definitely is. And we get to, you mentioned before, a thing that's also freaky here is, like, the whole thing about how the ghosts lose their faces, they start to lose their identity. And I think that adds to the creep factor here. Is I think as you we kind of figured out here, this is like more psychological thriller as opposed to the straight I think Hell House is more straightforward. I think that sort of made it mm-hmm. harder for the the casualized access. Yeah, no. I mean like I just really like the fact that the, each ghost, like they at one point knew who they were and now they're just sitting there confused about what's going on you know like that's scary like you know like you think about like people who are like oh you die you go to heaven and stuff like like you know it's just like you die you don't get to go because your soul is possessed to the property and you don't know who you are like that's like weird like i don't know that's extra scary especially for like 2020 i feel like this came out at a good time you know black long losing yourself because you don't know who you are because of you're stuck in the same house for hundreds of years. Yeah. Speaking of losing yourself, I do want to get to this point, which is why Peter Quint is like the biggest douche on the planet. And (laughs) aside from the fact that like he, his storyline, basically like he's having an affair with the previous au pair, Rebecca Jessel. Like he ends up like getting killed by the lady in the lake at one night. And his ghost is on the mansion grounds he figures out the rules of being a ghost. He possesses Rebecca and kills her so that they can live together in the afterlife, which is so messed up. uh, From being Luke to Peter, I just, what a downgrade for his character, but then like shows his 
is artistic craft. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I'm just like, God damn, Luke would never do this. Yeah. No, and he's such a, be- a dick. And then his brilliant plan is, and he and Rebecca, who were lovers in real life, there goes they're going to possess the kids to leave the mansion together and... To think about that when you have you're possessing like a ten, like an eleven year old and an eight year old as lovers is like ugh. Mm-hmm. I know. I remember seeing that. I'm like, oh god, this is horrible. Yeah. Luckily, Rebecca is not like part not down for all that. She doesn't possess Flora. They help Danny like try and get the kids out, but this is when the lady like grabs her. Then you get to the point you mentioned the finale where Flora gets grabbed. Flora's like Layla's about to drown Flora. Danny invites her in to possess, be possessed by Viola, saves, saves her, but we have the ticking time bomb in the background of Viola's spirit basically trying to possess Danny, and I thought the way they did that last episode was very interesting. Oh, it was. I feel like they try to, like, jam-pack. That's my biggest criticism is they, I feel like they jam-packed too much into the last episode. Yeah. I do think they, they did kind of yada-yada some key points there. and I still, <laughs> Like when of- you do these like clips for Twitter, I hope you do the um, what's her face from Seinfeld. Yeah, Elaine, yada yada yada. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're yada yada yadaing some key information, and we, 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 we <laughs> But the bottom line basically is Danny and Jamie leave the manor. Jamie, the gardener, and Danny got to know each other like very well during the during her time working there. They. They basically move to America, start a flower shop together, eventually get weakly wed. But Danny ends up going back to Blythe, taking her own life when she seals the ghost of Viola trying to take over her and kill Jamie. So very good sacrifice from Danny's character. And it does, it's a very tragic ending for her. It is a very tragic, but then again, like her, it kind of like circles out because I feel like she always feels guilty for her fiance dying. Yes. Like, he died because of her. Now she'll die so she can save Jamie. Like, to, like, make amends for her, like, wrongdoings. Like, even though her fiancé in the beginning, uh, that was accidental. But she's always felt guilty about it. So I feel like she would never let that happen to her, like, you know, lover. Yeah. I do think that was also kind of a bit of a letdown, the way they did that. Because they made the ghost of the fiancé such a menacing character. Because he's the main ghost Mm -hmm. you see in the first three episodes where you see the figure with the glasses with the yellow lights in them. And then they kind of just drop it after the third episode. You never really see him again. Exactly. Like if he's haunting her, then wouldn't he like somewhat protect her or push her more towards danger? If he's that mad at her, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like he would have something to do if he is haunting her. Yeah. Like that one. And I think they dropped the ball on that, but we do get, I don't know if you caused the end of the story. I do think it was an interesting twist at the end where we get back to the adult wedding and we see finally it's Flora's wedding and Flora has completely forgotten everything that happened at Bly. Her and Miles forgot the possessions and just assumed they spent summers there. At the end, we get the scene where Jamie's in her hotel room. She leaves the door open and hopes that Danny comes back and we get the shot. The last shot of the show is the hand on the back of the chair. So Danny's ghost has found Jamie again. Yeah, I, that would creep me out. Yeah. <laughs> Big time. Yeah, like, I saw that, like, that one surprise did not creep me out. I don't know. I just, like, anytime there's a hand on the back of the chair, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, shivers. Yeah. I think I think that was, I do think it's an interesting way to do the love story. It's like, for me, again, going back to Lost, kind of like 
a lot of these like lost romances did not end very well because one or both parties ended up dying before they could like have a happily ever after. So like they kind of give me that kind of vibe a little bit. I'm definitely still upset about the whole like Saeed love with what's her face and like what season one. Yeah. Saeed and Shannon. Yes. Still upset about it. Stupid Shannon. She's been for like five episodes or six episodes. Yeah, like Saeed didn't want to, I'm going to take a tangent on that one because I do agree they did that character awful at the end of the series. Yeah, because oh, I, I ended up watching the entire Lost series for Saeed, but yeah. here we are. That's a, that's a discussion for a different uh, a different podcast. I did, not, I did not know you were a Saeed person. That was, He was your guy. Yeah, he was my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember I started that show as a Locke fan, then I sort of jumped on the Desmond, and like after he Desmond showed up, and Locke started being a complete asshole, like in the middle of season three. Yeah, no, I was Saeed from day one. Yeah, Saeed's a great character, but like I didn't, the thing I did not like about Saeed, what they did with him was how they sort of abandoned his real life love affair with Nadia, and in the after they had him get together with Shannon again, which I was like, why? I mean, Loki love that because I didn't like Nadia. I understand where you're coming from, from like a, you know, like a pretty, you know, I'm not lying, but like I just love Shannon and Saeed. I thought that was so cute. Yeah, so that that ends. That was, that's that's the lost discussion here. So we'll put that aside. So maybe one day we'll do a further <laughs> lost discussion. But for now, I think let's leave it here. Let's give this a grade. How did you grade Haunting of Apply Manor? I'm gonna give it a solid B. Yeah, so why the B? So, because uh, I want to give it an A just because I like giving it. If I can give out grades, everybody would get an A because I'm not the smartest person you'll meet. Um, but, but B, um, for the story, I liked the backstory. I liked the idea of the becoming basically nothing. And you become this, like, machine because you forget who you are. So you go back to your, like, basic human instinct. Um, I didn't like the whole, like, like you said, the accent thing, uh, with the uncle. Um, I didn't fully like how the story like finished, how I thought it was like rushed at the end. Um, but overall it was entertaining. It, I thought it was scary in some spots. So I think it gets a solid passing grade of a B. Yeah. I'm going a B plus. I think. I like the, the episodes, the f- episodes five and eight were creative enough. I think that really elevate the whole series. It picks up steam as it goes. I do think that the acting was very well done. Aside from Henry Thomas, I think was miscast in his spot. I think Kate Siegel's flashback episode was a highlight of the whole show, but I think the way they did that mm-hmm. was really phenomenal. And I think the, the thing I give them credit for is they did not attempt to just say, Oh, we'll do Hill house again. We'll do the exact same beast. They gave you a different type of angle, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And before we move on from this, I want to also ask if it's an important question concerning these, we have a two signature ghosts of the show. Which one is creepier? The lady in the lake or the bet neck lady from Hol- from Haunting a Hill House? 100% the lady of the lake because I just was at an Airbnb in Vermont two weeks ago and yeah. there was a mini lake and I literally, like, literally was scared that something was going to come out of the lake. I stayed in my bedroom when it got like too dark and I like locked the door. Just because of the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think I actually go the other way. I go with the bent neck lady just because, like, that's just such a creepy visual to see. It's just, like, a ghost flowing around, like, her neck, like, completely bent at, like, a 90-degree angle. I mean, yeah, but, like, at the end, that's you. You're looking at you. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's another great point from Hill House is, like, 
the whole idea that the bent neck lady that's haunting young Nell is Nell is an adult after she commits suicide. It's like, that's like really when Hale House gets you like really messed you're like, whoa, they are onto something here. It's like the creepiness. Yeah, that was a very big plot twist of the first season. It, it was. And are there any, I do think they're going to do another haunting probably like probably two years out like they did with this one. So what do you think mm-hmm. the, the next haunting would be? What would you want to see them do? Oh, I don't know, because they do such a good job with these older, um, you know, these older stories and then making them modernized. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. I would like it if maybe there was a little less English accent for uh, actors who aren't the best at doing an English accent. Yeah. Um, but I like the, like, I don't know, I think I might want more ghosts again. Like, I don't know, like, uh, the first season, they kind of appeared out of nowhere. Like, they were, it was more, like, a traditional ghost. Lady of the Lake was, like, a ghost story, of course, but it was, like, coming out of the water. It was, like, more, you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes any sense to you or anybody listening. I just liked the, like, that whole, you know, twist in the beginning with the house. Yeah. Uh, with the multiple ghosts. There's, like, a lot of multiple ghosts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was, they were more of a character. Yeah. I think they could look, I think there's got to be something the Stephen King, like, collection. I think there's got to be something there they can t- draw inspiration from. That's my personal opinion. That's true. I feel like they're they've been doing all these like like really old ghost stories. Maybe yeah. we'll take something out of like Edgar Allan Poe or something like ridiculous. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe would be a good one because Edgar Allan Poe was a lot of weird stuff. If you if you read some of his things, a lot of weird stuff and like super dark, like super dark. Yeah, because I, I feel like they might do a little bit what they did here because like. Bly Manor is technically based on Turning of the Screw, but they sort of incorporate mm-hmm. a couple of other stories there, like a romance, the romance of old clothes is is a separate ghost story. I think the Lady in the Lake is a separate ghost story. They sort of added different elements, and I can see them doing a hodgepodge of Poe this season three. It'd be fun. Yeah, see, maybe we're on to something here. I think we are, and let's do two quick things before we wrap up here, which is number one, Unsolved Mysteries, the next batch is back out. What was your favorite episode from the second batch of Unsolved Mysteries? A death in Oslo. Like, I want to know who she is. Yeah, that one got me. I'm, like, still processing that one. Like, it's funny because I'm like, ooh, she was a spy. And then they didn't say anything until, like, towards the end. And they're like, she could have been a spy. I'm like, yeah, definitely. Like, who is she? Yeah. You know, and they're like, because if she was a spy... We would never know who she is. I don't even care. You didn't even need to play the spoiler alert. This is an unsolved mystery. Yeah, I'm not playing. This play- is like from the 1990s. <laughs> I'm not playing for that. That's on Netflix as well. You can check that out there. I do love when they do the episodes where you have the subtitles and it's basically told by people in foreign languages. I think those will always stand out. Oh, yeah. The one, the spirits, like the ghosts in Japan. Yes. That one, that was-, one was like. That was really good. I don't normally like, I didn't like the UFO one from the first batch, like the first season. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was okay. I'm not going to say I don't like it because I watched it. But like this one was really good. And then like the way that different cultures like quote unquote deal with ghosts was like really interesting to see. Yeah. And again, people who I've, I've been this plug out before, but my friends, Justin and Andy, they had their own podcast. They basically talk about like, whatever is on their mind. And they did talk to the guy who was in that episode. One of the people who was quote unquote abducted by the UFOs. Check out their podcast. Oh, really? If you want to talk to that guy, because that guy was very interesting to listen to. Yeah. Like, it's not like I 
don't believe in aliens because aliens are technically any living thing, like, you know, microbacteria or anything outside of Earth. Like, that's totally a thing. But, like, you know, I'm never going to discredit anything I don't know. Just, like, I don't like the idea of UFOs. I'm rather okay with being haunted by a ghost than getting abducted by, like, aliens with a UFO. People are going to think I'm crazy, but it's okay. Uh, I am. Um, so that's why I don't think I like watched that one because I didn't thoroughly like appreciate it probably from a viewer standpoint. Yeah. So for those who are curious in that interview, I will say, check out the Paul Giamatti school of hard knocks podcast. I will share the link to that episode. And that's what I, that's my plug for them because they, I, they sort of spun off of me a little bit. So I'm going to give them the shout out there. Last thing is obviously this is Halloween. Talking some Halloween costumes. What's let's talk some ideas here. What's a good pop culture costume for twenty twenty? Now, do you want a good pop culture costume in twenty twenty, or what I'm going to be at work on Halloween for twenty twenty? That's my question for you. We'll do both. We'll do pop culture first. Okay, so pop culture. I feel like anything like TikTok related right now, like anything like you can pull from that, like that you're like, you know what I mean? Like you can pull funny things. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, Tiger King still has, has some sort of like a push and whatnot. Uh, but that's, what that's like my pop culture thing. Anything like coronavirus-y or like those blow-up things are definitely pop culture-y. Like blow-up T-Rex, blow-up um, animal balloon, like all those things. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things you can do here. I do think this is the only Halloween you can do Tiger King. I think you're doing it next year. You're way too late. Definitely. Yeah. And then you have to wait like 10 or 15 years to be like retro. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I think Tiger King is one you can do. I feel like he's kind of pop culture based on his appearances on the media, but like, I feel like Dr. Fauci is going to be a popular Halloween costume this year. Oh yeah. I feel like he's a lock for being like one of the most popular Halloween costumes of the year. I'm trying to think what else actually happened this year in terms of pop culture. Like I will tell you mine, assuming it gets here on time. It's pop culture related. It's like, I will be a supermarket sweet contestant because we talk, Leslie, about the sweaters. They do sell them on ABC's website, so I do have one coming in the mail. Awesome. I really hope it gets to you in time if you only hope that my costume gets to me in time. So what are you going with? I'm going to be Guy Fieri for Halloween. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I work at a restaurant. I'm going to buy two goatees, one for my actual face because we have to wear a mask, and then one for my mask. So double- I got a wig. I got a visor. I can do a visor if I want. I have a bowling shirt. I have those like sporty sunglasses. And I've been binge watching a lot of Guy Fieri Food Network, diners, yeah. drive-ins, and dives. A supermarket, not supermarket suite. Guys, no, right. grocery games. Yeah, the, the spiritual spinoff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Oh. Yeah. I- so hopefully, all my stuff comes in. Hopefully, all your stuff comes in. Yeah, supermarket sweep is like my thing. It's like I, it's easy. I can rock the sweater and say I'm I'm gonna be rocking this, like running down the aisles and grabbing big inflatable things. That would be fun for Halloween. I think. Yeah, and you you need like one of those like fun like black sharpie marker like the thick felt put your name tag. Yeah, that's what you need too, though. Yeah, I could probably make that happen. Like like also have the inflatable donuts. I can stick the bonus tag on. That'd be good. <laughs> Yes, that'd be great. Yeah. And then you can, like, because you have to stay socially distant for Halloween, we can all Halloween in our living room. Yeah, we can do a Zoom Halloween. Yeah, I mean, if you always, if anybody wants to come visit me at work, I'll be in my Guy Fieri costume, finger 
crossed, hopefully. Yeah, so we'll talk about that, but it is going to be on the gram. You said that the other day. So how can people follow you on social media if they want to do that? So on Instagram, where I hopefully I'll be posting a good Guy Fieri costume picture on Saturday on the 31st. Cindy S. DeRosa175. Uh, you can always DM me to say you found me on the podcast because I am private because I'm a private individual. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at S-C-E-R-O-S five so esteros five and i'm not part private i'm public because i have no consistency in my life hey why not just follow sam on that let sam thank you all the time really appreciate it oh thanks for having me again mike okay up next we're gonna be joined by alan austin to wrap up this halloween episode we're gonna do a little pop culture draft about what you should do on halloween like what sort of content you should consume if you are not going out and you're being a socially responsible adult unlike certain la dodger players out there right after this. All right, we are back here. More Halloween pop culture coverage. Join me today, the third member of the pop culture team, wrapping up the show with the great Alan Austin. Alan, how are you? Good, Mike. Uh, Honored that you called me great. I really appreciate that. It's it's a pleasure being here as always. Hey, if you you guys take time to talk to me, you're great in my book. (laughs) Well... Uh, I appreciate that. Back at you. Yeah. Before we get into the Halloween stuff, I want to touch on updates on a couple of things he talked about in the pop culture sphere in the past. Number one, the Big Brother All-Star season just ended on Wednesday night. I want to toot my own horn that I won the Big Brother draft when Cody won 9 to nothing. so I'm going to give myself a little plug there. But your thoughts on the season as a whole? I thought it was a boring, predictable season with a pretty interesting and effective finale. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. The the ride they get there, especially after they had that triple eviction, was very, very slow. But, like, the finale, the moment was great when Cody cut Nicole and her, her face just, like, dropped. And it was just glorious to watch. It was probably the most interesting moment of the season. Which is pretty... That had to do with... That, sorry, that had to do with the gameplay. Yeah. I do feel that Cody felt bad about it. And coming into the house, he probably did say, I'm going to be loyal to Nicole and Memphis. And the, the way Memphis game played, it made it a little bit more easy to cut cord, cut the cord with Memphis where he doesn't feel guilty about it. But he really had no reason to turn on Nicole. And I bought the genuine sadness that he felt in clipping her. Yeah, it was definitely a fun ending. It definitely deserved the win. And I do think... I wrote a blog post this week about like ways that the game should be fixed. And I do think that they they do have a problem on their hands. They actually care to fix it, which I'm not sure they do. No, and they've got to make less HOH physicality comps. Yep. They've got to mix it up more. But I will say this, kudos to them to making the final HOH a little bit more of a competition as opposed to arbitrary answers that you just guess to, to win. That was way more effective than the scales of justice. Yes, that was on my list of mixing up the competition types. I also think to, to get this better, I think you need to cast more fans of the game and not people who are running into the house to try and build up social media following after the game. And I, my big one is, I think, let me know what you think about this, is I think you have to find a way to try and kill off the idea of the perpetual pawn where like you just put the same person up every week because then nobody gets any real blow on their hands. Is they think my idea is like at least the first half of the game or up until the jury phase, depending on how you pick it, if you survive the block, you're immune the next week. So you can't, they can't just keep throwing you up there. I like that idea. Yeah. I think it should work until jury. Yeah. 
because that way it, it, it's, it yeah. forces you to spice the game up early because you can't just say like this this year like poor Kevin as soon as he's arrived the first week was just the, the go-to guy put on the block like oh you're the pawn we'll get rid of the other person on the block and I think if you do that to Kevin and Kevin has immunity week two you're like oh I have to put somebody else up I can't just throw Kevin up again right and and it can be used strategically to have the hey I, I put you up as a pawn more people will be willing if they know there's immunity the next week yeah it gives it gives you the 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 uh, roll of the dice there. I do like that. I think that's something they should consider next year. Yeah. Would you also include? You can only be backdoored once. So if you survive the backdoor, which is rare, you can't ever be backdoored again. I guess that doesn't make sense because you're not getting backdoored unless you're going out, unless the person they are targeting puts themselves off the block. I, I don't know. There's a lot to think about here. You've got my wheels turning now. Yeah, I think that's a discussion for another day. But the other one I want to get to is we talked about the Craig Carton documentary. We speculated about his return, WFAN. It's official now. He is going to be on WFAN starting on November 9th. He's pairing with Evan Roberts, two to sevens. Joe Beningo is retiring on the 6th. And what do you think of that pairing? How do you think it's going to work? I don't really have a problem with it at first because I'm not – look – there had been rumors that they were looking to pair Carton up with an ex-athlete, the likes of Willie Colon. I remember seeing his name. But when you look at other markets and when you look at fan itself, it's not always guy and, and athlete. There's no reason to think this won't theoretically work just because Evan Roberts is not an ex-athlete. Yes, Carton is a polarizing figure, but I think that will balance off well with the true sports fan that is Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts is more of the, for the lack of a better term, nerdy sports fan than, say, Carton is. But I think they'll they'll be able to work with each other. And I think Evan, maybe not at first, but eventually will learn how to reel Craig in and balance the program out. So, positively speaking, there's no reason for me to say, oh, this won't work. I'm going to sit back, see what we've got, and see what happens. I, I, I do think that, Right off the bat, Craig Carton is a must-listen at the moment. So regardless of how they start, people will be listening, and they will have an opportunity to get a groove going for sure. Yeah, I do think it's a good choice to do it this way because I feel like if they try to get the athlete, they're, they're, feel they're trying to recreate uh, Boomer and Carton in the afternoon, I don't think that's the right play to do. I feel like that is best works in the morning, and I do think – that sort of opposite dichotomy works where Evan's more of the straight talk, straight sports talk guy, while Craig's more of the cartoon character, and they sort of balance each other out there. I think Joe, Joe has been a great listen for years, but Joe, I do think, has lost some miles off his fastball over the past couple of years, and his shtick does kind of get repetitive. So having a new dynamic in there could juice the ratings up for them. And I, the fact that Craig and Evan have known each other for so many years definitely helps. They're not coming in blind, you know what I mean? They yeah. know each other. There is a history there. So that kind of helps the transition as well. Yeah, plus you don't disrupt too much of the rest of the lineup because the Moose and Maggie midday show is sort of picking up its own, I think it's getting into a groove there where they sort of have, have an idea of how they want to do it. And it's it's good radio if you listen to it. I do think the Evan Joe was not made for for afternoon drive, especially once the pandemic hit and they couldn't just rely on straight sports. So I think Carton being in there, I think it was a good change. Yeah, and I'm glad that Mark Malusis gets to keep his spot with Maggie, and hopefully this becomes the lineup for years to come, um, And unless people on this station move on to bigger and better things and open up spots for people like us. But until then, this is going to be a pretty fine. I do wish there was a little more diversity amongst the shows, 
but you, what we've got is entertaining to say the least. And we'll, hopefully it'll, it'll work. Hopefully it will. And now we'll get to some of the Halloween fun, which is what you're here for, which is uh, first off, I want to get your take on Bly Manor. I talked about the premiere with you way back in mid October. Sandra Rosa in the last segment just went through a deep dive into the show. What was your big takeaway from the season as a whole? I actually, I enjoyed it. And I know there were a lot of complaints. I'm sure you and Sam covered it about the legitimate scares being taken out of this, this season. And I do think there was a lot of moving parts that did not need to be there, specifically the subplot with Rebecca and Peter Quint, which made me think of Homeland. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Peter Quint and Rebecca, you spend so much time with them only for their story to ultimately get kind of discarded because of another event without saying too much. I guess I've already spoiled well, something. Well, but... I mean, we, we talked about it. You can go into it if you want. Okay. So the fact that Peter Quint's this mastermind trying to elaborate, like, have this where him and Rebecca are able to leave Bly Manor as ghosts through the body of the children. But because the Lady of the Lake finds peace, they are suddenly in the afterlife and spirits. And it did not matter. Does that make it? Or unless I'm missing something. No, that's exactly, you got it right. Okay, so to spend that much time with them for it to not matter because the Lady in the Lake is more important, I thought was like, whatever. But the hook that got me this season was the Danny ending. And, you know, without getting into the weeds, to see a character represented uh, her depression, her anxiety, her guilt, I thought the portrayal of that leading to her unfortunate demise was so moving. I was a big fan of the handling of the demons constantly creeping up on her and ultimately getting the better for her. I thought that was handled very well. And I was hook, line and sinker rooting for Danny pretty much this entire season. So I will say as a fan, uh, people are going to disagree with me, but I thought the Danny, the way Danny was handled this season, I was very, very happy with. And I, that, that and the acting alone were enough for me to say that this was a success. And they, the whole lack of scares, I mean, that talking point is negated by a line in the last season by the older Flora who says, you lied or you, you, you were wrong. This isn't a ghost story. It's a love story. And that right there, yeah, it might not be scary for people looking for scares, but there are certainly eerie elements told amongst this love story. And if you look at it objectively like that, I don't see how you don't at least recognize the quality of the product that was there. Yeah, I definitely think there's something else that's wrong with Sam. It's obviously like this is a love story in disguise. They draw you in with the ghost. They do tell this love story. I do think it's more of a psychological thriller than what you got in season one, which is more of a straight like haunted house story with all like the jump scares and the ghosts. I think it worked well for what I was trying to do, but like anybody expecting them to basically come in and do Hill House again was going to be very disappointed. So let's also talk about some other things here. I talked to Sam also about some Halloween costumes, pop culture wise. What's your favorite like pop culture costume of all time? I mean, I dressed as Goofy from ages like four to eight. So for me personally, my number one costume of all time is Goofy. Yeah, I was a huge Goofy nerd. 
My favorite cartoon characters of all time are Goofy and Daffy Duck. So I don't know if that sheds a little light into my personality, but my all time favorite costume is Goofy. And I know that's not like a creative, like whatever, but I will say that in college, I dressed as a cave woman being eaten by a dinosaur. And I borrowed the costume from my roommate at the time who cut up a children's baby bop costume put a t-rex head on it and it went over your arm onto your shoulder so it's like you were being eaten at the arm shoulder area by the dinosaur and dressed as a cave woman throughout interesting i'll say that's definitely not well i've gone down i think some of my interesting ones in the past obviously i've done jack bauer in 24 i did that one year i did spock from start the star trek movie the new boots i like doing that one in terms of creativity, my best one was Mr. Monopoly. Wow. Are there pictures of this anywhere? I do not have a picture of Mr. Monopoly, the, that costume anywhere. There is a picture of me as a referee, though, somewhere on the internet. Okay. Yeah. I would love to have seen the Mr. Monopoly one. Mr. Monopoly was great. I got the top hat. I bro- basically like throwing Monopoly money out of, out of a jacket pocket. It was fantastic. And did you wind up in jail at the end of the evening? No, I did not go to jail. I passed go and collected $200. Oh, very nice. So you made money on it. What a great costume. It was a fantastic costume. Yeah, and in terms of this year, obviously, this Halloween's going to be different because it's a pandemic Halloween. I assume you and I are both on the same page. We're both, like, socially responsible citizens. We're not going to be going out to, like, the usual parties we go to for Halloween. So what's your Halloween pandemic plan? My Halloween pandemic plan is to, you know, me and my my fiancé and I will be going to my family's house to kind of do Halloween crafts on the patio. It might be a little cold, but we're going to suck it up and go there. No costumes, probably. It's a little late in the game. I was hoping to be Beetlejuice this year. Just don't think it's going to work a little late in the game. Good thing about Halloween is, I mean, the thing about Halloween is you should probably pre-plan a costume because if you think about going to Spirit Halloween or something at the last minute, you're never going to find something that you want. So I botched that. So we're just going to hang out. Um, You know, I don't think my family's going to be giving out candy this year, just trying to limit any kind of irresponsibilities. So we're just going to hang out, do crafts, maybe have like, my mom's obsessed with Hocus Pocus, maybe have that on the background and just kind of hang out. Yeah, it's like, I do have, I did have a costume idea, but I don't know if it's going to make it on time, thanks to the awesomeness of the postal service here. I did order the new Supermarket Sweep sweatshirt, so that's one I will be a Supermarket Sweep contestant for Halloween if it arrives on time. Can you please just run around your kitchen throwing stuff in a bag as fast as possible? <laughs> yeah, I just got to do that. Send a tape to Leslie Jones. They'll get on the show next season. Beautiful. Yeah. That's your audition. Yeah. By the way, have you checked out the new season of the show? I have not yet. I've heard it's great. It's a lot of fun. I mean, we get so, we get all kinds of craziness here like this. And I'll give you an extra $500 if you can bring me the following items from my personal shopping list. I'm having a me night tonight. So I want a Glade scented candle, a spatula, and a cucumber. Don't ask me what none of it's for. It's me night! <laughs> Leslie Jones is literally on her game. <laughs> that is incredible. I mean, the casting of her as host was, from the beginning, a great choice. So I'm glad it's working out. Yeah, and she, like, she is the most enthusiastic host I've ever seen of a game show. Like, she is so fired up to be there, and the contestants literally get fired up by her energy. And she said at like, one point she wanted to actually audition to be on the original show when David Ruprecht was hosting. 
Wow, that's a funny fact. Yeah, she's like, yeah, my knee, I can't do it now. My knees stink, but I'm happy to host and just give and just give the contestants all the joy running around the supermarkets, throwing things in willy nilly. That's funny. It's pretty good, and I do have this. I do have it coming. Hopefully, it gets here on time. But since you are here, we do like to do some drafts on this show. Let's have a quick four round draft. We're going to do some Halloween related pop culture content. If you want to stay home. This can be some sort of scary movie. It could be ghosting, whatever you qualify as Halloween. So the floor is really wide open to you. As they get to give you the first choice, what's your first Halloween go-to pick? Okay. I'm going to go with my favorite horror film of all time. And people under the age of me, 31, may think that it's a little outdated, blah, blah, blah. But I think if you go in with an open mind, you will be properly scared. And that is my favorite Horror film of all time, Poltergeist. Ooh, good one. Why Poltergeist? I think it's a pretty complete movie. You have the haunted house element. You have the Indian burial ground idea. You've got the the filming with the real bones in the pool. And to go along with the horror theme, you've got the most cursed movie franchise ever. And I, I won't get into the deep dive of it on here right now, but Poltergeist, for being a horror film, a lot scarier than just what you see on screen. And as a kid, the clown doll scared me to death almost. And I just think it is so well-timed. The acting's great. And to me, it's my favorite horror movie of all time. Yeah, it's a good choice, number one. I'm going to take for my first pick. I'm not going to go directly horror yet, but I'm going to go with a good ghost story. And I want to have some fun, have some laughs. I'm going with the original Ghostbusters as my first Halloween movie pick. Very good. You can't go wrong with that. You can't go wrong with that. You got great comedy. You got some ghosts. You got the Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd like phenomenon there, and you got the all time great line in there of of like Ray. Like when they ask you, I forget what the exact line is, but it was like Ray. When they ask you about this, you say yes. <laughs> I will. I love. I love that <laughs> one. So I. I love that movie. Ghostbusters 2 is also a good choice, but I will go with Ghostbusters 1. Let me ask you something. I know there's like conspiracy theories out there or fan theories. Do they die when they cross streams at the end of one? I do not think they die. I my, okay. I think they got out of there. That's my hunch because I feel like we would have had a more interesting angle with two if they'd actually died. But I feel like they lived. And I got to say, Ghostbusters has one of the best characters in movie history, in my opinion. And it's not like a main character, but the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is such an image that is so iconic. It's just great. Yeah, what'd you think of the reboot, by the way? I did not see it. I thought it got more heat than it deserved. I'm sure. People were hating it from the moment it was announced, and we've got another, I don't know if it's a reboot or considered a sequel, coming up. Kind of both. Uh, yeah, so I did not see it, not for any reason of like boycott or anything like that. Just didn't get around to it. Yeah, it's not bad. Like, it's not great by any means, but it's not like the abomination people make it out to be. That's fair. Yeah. All right. You're, where are you going with your next one? My, my next pick is going to be a song, a truly Halloween themed song. It's a classic. I'm going to draft the Monster Mash. Oh, you got to take the Monster Mash. It's the graveyard smash. Absolutely. I mean, 
we you hear it everywhere around this time of year too. So you got to play a little Monster Mash when you're when you're at your in your Halloween Zoom party on Saturday. Absolutely, it's a must. Yeah, I do remember too. I, I you and I as kids of the '90s you remember like they kind of worked. They kind of made jokes about it and like there were like Power Rangers episodes of Halloween where they would make jokes about Monster Mash. I don't think they actually used the song. No, and probably for copyright issues. But the the speaking of Power Rangers. Do you remember the rapping pumpkin yes. villain? I might watch that episode on Halloween, to be honest with you. <laughs> what a great villain. I can't remember his name. I think I will it was, look it up while we're on the phone. I think it was something really stupid. I think it was something really like really like pumpkin rapper or something dumb like that. His name was the pumpkin rapper. <laughs> Holy shit, I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That is so funny. And he has a Funko Pop figure. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. I might have to, might have to order that one. Yeah. yeah. I, I Okay, real quick. Power Ranger villains, because I was the biggest Power Ranger fan as a child. Yep. Um, the Pudgy Pig okay. was always iconic, but I'd have to say the two that real, like, the, the, that's third place for me. Pumpkin Rapper, fourth place. Second place, would have to be the stoplight turtle. I don't know if you remember him. I think I do. He was like a turtle who had a stoplight on his head. Yeah, it was. And then number one was a toad who ate them, and when he ate them, their pictures would appear on his belly. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which other. I think the one that I that like struck struck out to me. I think was like the one where they were fighting the monster where they had to play football. That monster was actually, I think, my number one. Oh, I remember that one, yes. Yeah, I don't remember his name, but, like, it was such a fun, like, fight. I remember that one. Uh, all good stuff. Great show. Great show. Does not age very well, but it is, it is a fun nostalgia trip. <laughs> yeah, I'll... Just for just for the last, I'm going to take that Halloween episode as my second pick. I probably will watch on Halloween, so I'll take that one. Wow, honorable for that show. Yeah. I think it's fun. It's a nice, easy 22 minutes of your life. It's even less thing on Netflix. It's like 19 minutes of airtime. So you don't, you really can just do that within less than half an hour. It's fun. Nostalgia trip. And you can laugh at Pumpkin Rapper. There you go. Is Power Rangers on Netflix? Yes, it's on Netflix. Unbelievable. I've got some, I've got some television watching to do. Yeah, I think they have like every season of the show, I think including all the random spinoffs they've had after the original ones. So like, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, you can, but like, I think I watched the originals. I kind of stopped there. No, I'm not watching anything after the original. Yeah. Okay. So where are you going? All right, so Next pick. My third pick, I thought about going like different media. I, I thought about throwing in a resident evil or something like that in the video game sphere. Cause there are so many horror themed video games. But I did not think it would be fair because I am not well-versed in the actual gameplay. So I think to draft it would be insincere. So I just want to honorable mention video games in the horror world and the Halloween world. But with my third pick, I am taking Beetlejuice. That's a good one. Friend of the podcast, Will Snyderhan, is sort of trying to Beetlejuice into existence, the best game Francisco Lindor. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, he should build just into existence. Bill de Blasio not trying to stop the sale. <laughs> that might be the scariest thing that happened this Halloween is if he has some say in the matter. But uh, Beetlejuice, I mentioned before, 
I, my fiance had never seen the movie. We watched it last week. I love it even more as I get older because I get more of the jokes that I didn't get the last time I watched it, probably like 15 years ago. And now that I've seen all of Shit's Creek, just to see Catherine O'Hara playing what was like the OG Moira Rose in Beetlejuice, along with like so many great moments, so many great jokes. I, people don't realize that Beetlejuice himself only has like 15 minutes of screen time, but when he's on, it's pretty impactful. What a fun ride that movie is. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. I do. I did enjoy Beetlejuice at the time. Like, if I was to use the Beetlejuice power, I would almost like to use it, like, say, three times and get Adam Gase off the Jets. That would be my use of Beetlejuice's power. <laughs> that might be a waste, because I do think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Let me ask you, real quick, Jets, who leaves the Jets first, Adam Gase or Quinn and Williams? Adam Gase. Okay. I'm convinced of that. And they're not, they're not going to trade Quentin Williams. All right. Well, I would hope not because he's improving, is he not? He is. He's getting much better. What do you got for your third pick? All right. My third pick, I'm going to go with a horror movie that is a more recent addition, but like one that I think is a fun rewatch, especially with the use of the found camera footage. I would go with Cloverfield as my third pick. Interesting. I would love to watch that again because I honestly haven't seen it since theater. Yeah, because I watched it. I watched it in the theater. I watched it again about two years ago. I remember I liked it more two years ago than I did in the theater. So I do think revisiting Cloverfield is definitely a worthwhile experience. Now, are you familiar with the theory at the end of the satellite crashing into the ocean? Yeah, I've heard that theory. Refresh my memory, though, is not top of mind. Basically, the very end of the film, they're sitting on like a Ferris wheel or something. And in like the very distant like view, you can see something crash into the water. So yes. people theorize, theorize that it's the monster crash landing onto Earth. They think it's the Cloverfield Paradox spaceship. There's like all these theories about what it is. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what your theory is. Yeah, I do remember that theory. Now you mentioned, I do. I've subscribed to the theory that it's like the monster crashing into the water because I do think it sort of ties into the the sequel, Ten Cloverfield Lane. I think it's something that they sort of exploit in the background, sort of say it's not over. Ten Cloverfield Lane, by the way, what a good movie! Very underrated movie. And the John Goodman performance is a plus. Yeah, I think like that's one like I put it like I had. I actually went on Stanko's John Stanko's podcast, friend of the podcast, Stanko stands recently. I think actually last year we talked about movie like our favorite movies of the previous decade and 10 Cloverfield Lane made my list. Wow, that's high praise. Yeah, I was a big fan of that movie. I thought it was much better than the original. But I think in terms of pure Halloween fare, I think Cloverfield itself is better. For sure, for sure. My final pick is Stranger Things. Oh, I don't know how I forgot that. That's a good call. Yeah, it's, it's very Halloween-y to me. It's a perfect mosh of all things sci-fi from the 80s horror from the 80s and you know in season two you had kids in michael myers masks you know it's just it's a collection of the best of halloween media all thrown into one in my opinion yeah i can't wait for stranger things season four to come out some presuming at some point maybe towards halloween next year i'm guessing is when we'll see it yeah, I'm also interested to see if they're going to have like big time monster elements, or if it's going to be more of a Hopper versus the Russians deal. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, because I mean, we did end like season three with like the with them basically bringing out a demogorgon again, which feels like that's sort of low stakes after what we've had the first three seasons. So I feel like there's got to be something bigger coming. Yeah, and 
I, I, I just want to say, like, I'm never a fan of the villain in the sequel being, like, a lesser version of the first movie's villain. Yeah. And Stranger Things 2 had the demo dogs as yeah. opposed to the Demogorgons. But I want to go back on that because I learned recently that the demo dogs are just younger versions of the big Demogorgons. Yeah. So it's not like they copped out and just made another version of the Demogorgon. It's all in line with its, like, growth. So I think now it's even better knowing that because I was holding a lot against it for that. What I thought was like kind of a lazy villain for season two. But I do think ultimately it's just so well done across the board. So I, I like it even more now. Yeah. Okay. For my last pick, I'm trying to think here because I have a couple ways I could go. I mean, I was thinking about doing Blair Witch Project. I feel like it's too similar to in Cloverfields. I want to offer a little variety here. I thought about doing the... Toy Story special on on like on Halloween, like the Toy Story of Terror. I don't know if you ever seen that, but that's all that's always pretty fun to just get that in. But I'll go with the classic to protest the fact that it's no longer on free TV. I'll go with the the Charlie Brown, the great Charlie Brown Halloween special. It's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown. The same way you said, I can't believe I didn't think of Stranger Things. That's how I, how I feel about your last pick. Yeah, because I that infuriates me to no end that it's now no longer on like ABC every every fall. It's gonna be on Apple TV going forward. Yeah, Peanuts cut that Apple deal, which is very upsetting. Yeah, they really did, because, like, that was one thing I always look forward to, because ABC every year would have, like, the special going with, like, they would put the It's a Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown on, and they would do the Toy Story Terror right afterwards. That's always, like, an easy hour just to, like, sit back and just ha- get in the Halloween spirit. Absolutely, and it's a great special. The Great Pumpkin, and every year as we got older, it always looked less and less clean, like the animation. Like, when we were young, it looked fine. Like, that was yeah. great. But as every year, it looks older and more dated, but it's still got that charm. It's still got that nostalgia, and it can't miss. It's just like Power Rangers. It gets worse and worse the further away you get from it. It still has that nostalgia. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Alan, I think it's a lot of fun. And as I got to say, as a pop culture guy, it's nice to see that some of these shows are finally coming back now. We speculate, I think, back in August that, like, Nope, that we're gonna wait till November to sort of get things back and stuff is starting to trickle onto the air. But one thing I noticed I've been reading online is that a lot of these shows have like shorter orders because they have to because it's more expensive to produce TV in the COVID era. So we've seen like I saw like a CBS I think it's basically cutting all the shows down to either sixteen or eighteen episodes as opposed to the usual twenty two. So I'm wondering if they think we're gonna get like more random stuff thrown in at some point this year. It reminds me of when the writers' strike happened. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, something is better than nothing. Something is better than nothing. And I do I do wonder, they said, back to our big brother at the top of the thing, they said we're going to see it again in the in the summer, in the usual spot. Would you be shocked yeah. if we got some kind of celebrity version again to sort of fill airtime? I'd be shocked just because it's such a beast to put together. And I think because summer is, they don't have the full, you know, August, or when does it usually end? September? Usually ends in September. I was talking about the celebrity season, style season where you have like three weeks to be running short on content. You mean between now and next full season? Yeah, it did, I think we might get a, a shortened celebrity thing, some kind of deal, because I think that could be, could be a possibility. I mean, the show is such a beast to put together. It might be tough, but that'd be welcomed. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at it though. Like the house is already built. Like if you told them and like. December, like, hey, be ready for March or something. Like, I think they could get something together. That'd be great. I'd be welcoming to that for sure. 
All right, Alan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people find on social media? Keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. At Alan, A-L-L-E-N, underscore Austin, underscore on Twitter. And on Instagram, it's at Alan Austin Sports. And I'm looking to up my social media game, Mike. So now's the perfect time to follow me because it's going to get, it's going to be pretty active from here on out. Absolutely. Well, Alan, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. All right. And that will do it for this special bonus episode of the podcast. I want to thank our guest today, John Stanko, Sandra Rosa, Alan Austin. A lot of fun talking to those three, as always. If you want to book stuff like this podcast, including my look at the issues that CBS's Big Brother has and some solutions to fix them, check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify, Amazon as well. YouTube is also a fun option there. Simply search for Just End the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can find all the other episodes on the podcatchers. YouTube, individual segments of the podcast going up, like my chat with John Stanko about the Mandalorian premiere. That's coming up on YouTube as well. We have your feedback and star ratings as well and make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And coming up next week on the podcast, we're going to have our NFL midseason report, NFL picks, and more. Until then, have a good Halloween, everybody.